All right, this is one of my favorite things uh, when it comes to seeing the beauty in the scriptures and the acts of God throughout history and how God has intertwined uh, his his saving of humanity with the prophetic announcements of the scriptures. It's, it is one of my most exciting things. Uh, so we're digging into Passover today and I want to just catch you up really briefly so you're on the same page as me here as we begin this uh, Sunday Bible study. Passover is one of the seven Jewish feasts commanded by God in the Old Testament for Israel to obey. They were to walk in these seven Jewish feasts, these seven times a year where they would do specific like religious festival type behaviors. Initially, we see it in Exodus chapter 12, but then they were to commemorate it every year and it was super, super important. You could be cut off from Israel if you didn't follow uh, with fulfilling this feast. It's also, in addition to it having the significant Old Testament Jewish um, uh, requirement, it also has significance in the life of Jesus because it's it's when Jesus died. Jesus died during Passover, during the commemoration of this feast. In fact, the uh, the the scholars tell us, the historians, even atheist historians tell us, that it's one of the most certain facts of history that Jesus died during Passover. So this is a pretty significant thing. Um, that means that when we say that the symbolism of Passover... When the symbolism of Passover is significant and something to look at as a prophetic type thing, that we're pulling from actual historical events, the, the history of Israel and celebrating and acknowledging the Passover, as well as the history of Jesus having actually died during Passover. But there is so much more detail in Passover than hardly anybody realizes. I'm going to give you 24 ways that Passover was fulfilled by Jesus. I'm actually going to give you more like 26. I'm going to give you some bonus ones. And there's more that I'm not even mentioning. Not even mentioning, I'll point you towards and you can research on your own. So this is fulfilled with uh, great detail and lots of neat symbolism, this prophetic feast of Israel. So Passover itself, what it looks like to the Jewish person as they're partaking of it is this is a commemoration of the 10th and final plague on the Egyptians. Most of you know the story, so I won't recap it for you, right? But there's these 10 plagues, the last one's the worst one. That's the one where Pharaoh finally says, okay, Get your people and get out of here. It's like the plague that causes the release of the people of Israel. It's, it's where God brings the children of Abraham out of bondage and into new life. And it's the beginning of a new nation of God's people. The commemoration of a new people, really. So this is, this is what Passover means. And with Jesus, it means all of that to the next level. So we're going to get into this 24 or so ways that Jesus fulfilled Passover. And I'll remind those who are watching live. Thank you first for joining me live. I'm glad to have you guys here. But we're not going to do Q&A today. I just want to get right into all the content, into how Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament in specifically reference to Passover. And we're not going to have time for the Q&A because it's going to be a rather long study today. But if you're interested in learning how to think biblically about everything, then I recommend that you consider subscribing. Uh, I don't charge anything for the content I produce. I'm just doing this to hopefully be a blessing to you. So if you want to grow in that, there's hundreds of hours of content for you to learn from. I try to spend a lot of time prepping and studying so that this is worth your time when you listen to these teachings. All right, here we go. Passover. Uh, let's talk about the big picture of Passover. <clears throat> Um, this again, it was to escape the 10th plague, the final plague on Egypt. This plague was going to fall on Israel too. It wasn't just on Egypt. It was on the Israelites as well. It was going to kill the firstborn of every home. And then there's a commemoration of it done yearly. And this is in remembrance of that plague, that event. But it also looks forward to the coming of Christ, to him being our, our Passover sacrifice. 
So why, though, uh, before I dig into all the symbolism, before I get into the first way in which Passover represents Christ, let me let me just explain to you why I would even connect Jesus to Passover in the first place. Um, see, it's not just me. This isn't just like a 21st century guy going, hey, uh, I'm going to find these connections that never existed, that none of the biblical authors saw that, that would, would be illegitimate to a Jew of the time. No, that's definitely not the case. So you're, you're used to like direct prophecies. That's not what we're talking about here. We're not talking about like, you know, he will come and he will do this. That's not the kind of prophecy we're talking about. Prophecy is a very widely used term in the New Testament. Sometimes it's that one-to-one fulfillment, prediction fulfillment. Other times it's about symbolism or typology. And that's what Passover is talking about. There's, there's like a, a correspondence in almost in a metaphorical sense between the events and the practices of the Old Testament and then the life and work of Christ. And that's what we're talking about here. This is what the book of Hebrews talks about a lot. It talks about prophetic types and shadows. We get it in Acts chapter 7 when Stephen talks to the people of Israel and he speaks to them about how the Old Testament provides all these shadows and types and pictures of the Messiah, the coming Messiah. Jesus himself said that he came and he was going to fulfill all of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, all of it, which means more than just direct one-for-one prophecies, but he meant he was going to fulfill all of it, which includes ultimately Passover. In fact, he was the one who chose the time of his death, his chosen time. He decided to be offered on Passover, to be crucified during that week. This was a choice in the person of Christ. He voluntarily went forward to die at that time. Previously, in the Gospels, we hear Jesus saying, my time's not yet come. My time is not yet come. But when Passover comes at this particular year, Jesus says, okay, the time is at hand. The Son of Man must, must be betrayed and suffer and die and rise again. It was something that had to happen according to Jesus. This then is our first proof text, our first verse we're going to go to as a way of showing you um, that in the first century, right after the death of Christ, this was already seen as relating to who Jesus was. It says here in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed for us. This is Christ, our Passover lamb. He's been sacrificed. This is already here early. In, in fact, one of the earliest letters in our New Testament is 1 Corinthians. And it's saying, look, Jesus is our Passover. He is our Passover. So the symbolism was already in place immediately, but it was established by Jesus, by him choosing that time for his death and resurrection. So the the Passover itself, Old Testament-wise, how it initially got started is that God was going to send this, this uh, destroyer, this being who was going to go through the, the land of Egypt and in every home would kill the firstborn. Now we're thinking, sometimes we think, oh, oh, so babies? Well, no, firstborn doesn't mean baby. We're talking about firstborns, which is different than that. But this is where this this would go, this uh, destroying angel, so to speak, would go through and kill the firstborn. And this was going to happen, like I said, to Israel as well. But what they did to avoid this um, this judgment and this suffering was they offered a lamb. They killed the lamb like ritually killed, like as a sacrificial offering. And they took the blood of the lamb and they put it on the doorposts, on the door of the home. So the way they would access the home was covered by blood. And then they would enter that home and that home sort of sanctified or made clean by the blood of this lamb would protect them from the coming judgment. They were safe in the house. And so here we get to our first correspondence. The first way that Passover represents Jesus and is fulfilled by him is that there is a lamb that is offered. There's a sacrificial animal that's offered. And that's what we get right there in that passage I share with you. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. It says, For Christ our Passover 
lamb has been sacrificed. He's been, he's, he, he didn't just die. You see, he's been sacrificed, meaning he was offered for us or on our behalf. His death isn't just something that happens that we look at for inspiration, although I do, but it's also something done for me in my place. And this sets the whole context for Jesus. Jesus offered himself, offered himself, not just to die, but to die as an offering, as a sacrifice. The offerings of the Old Testament, the suffering of the animals in the Old Testament, and you, and if it hurts your heart that God would allow them to be sacrificed, that's actually healthy because you're realizing that there was a real painful, hurtful sacrifice in Jesus that he was going to come and fulfill all of those all of those animal sacrifices in his one sacrifice. And we get this in the book of Hebrews. It talks about it. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12 through 14, where it says, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls, uh, excuse me, if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the, the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish, Keep in mind that sacrificial term without blemish. We'll come back to that. Offered himself to God. Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So that it, it removes the awareness of our past sins. Not that we don't know we committed them, but the guilt of them is gone. Because Jesus, he is the sacrifice. He is the one who was offered for us. So those animal sacrifices in the Old Testament are a shadow. Jesus is the fulfillment. He's the one casting the shadow. They're a metaphor, so to speak. I mean, they really happened. They're historical events. I'm not at all saying they didn't happen. But they happened as a metaphor, as a living metaphor for the the Christ who would come and offer himself. So that that's the at the heart of Passover is a sacrificed lamb, a sacrificed lamb. And this is all uh, about Jesus Christ. Let me read to you a larger section from Hebrews because I want to set the tone. I'm going to move quicker through some of the other uh, you know, examples of these 24, 26 ways Jesus fulfilled Passover. But as we begin, we're going to move a little slower because it's going to establish the groundwork. So Hebrews 10, reading verses 1 through 14, listen to what this says about how Jesus fulfills the, uh, the sacrifices of the Old Testament. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of their true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would not uh, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So the, the first portion here in Hebrews chapter ten is telling us, hey, the, the repeated sacrifices, do it again every year, every year, every year is a way of saying the job's not really fully completed. Jesus, though, he only does it once to show you the job is done. Then we have in verse 5, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offerings you've not desired, but a body you've prepared for me. As in those Old Testament offerings? Nope, it's not going to be that. It's going to be Jesus' body that's offered. He's the lamb. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. It is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he, said ab- uh, when he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I've come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once 
for all. So here we have actually Hebrews giving us divine commentary on what God said in the Old Testament in his prophetic announcements about how Christ would be the one who would fulfill the symbolism, the symbolism in the sacrifices of the Old Testament. Verse 11, and every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And so we have here the the, uh, the image of Jesus Christ having being offered for us to provide us true cleansing of our sins. And that's the number one thing that we want to see in Passover. Passover centers on this lamb. The original sacrifice in, in Exodus 12, it's all about the lamb. In modern Jewish homes, believe it or not, there is no lamb offered in Passover. They don't eat lamb at the meal and they don't offer lamb. After the destruction of the temple in 70 AD and some rabbinical debates that happened in the first century, eventually they just stopped offering lamb altogether. I, I feel like almost what's going on now is a picture of how there is no other offering but Jesus. But at the time, it was all about the lamb. It was all about that lamb. And they have uh, erected a bunch of other traditions on top of, you know, Passover that they do nowadays. We'll get into a little bit of that later and talk about how that may relate to Christ. But ultimately, Jesus is the lamb. All right, number two, number two. Uh, The first one is a sacrificial lamb. Uh, Number two is the purpose of the lamb, and people miss this, was to avoid punishment for sin. Avoiding punishment for sin was was at least one of the purposes of the lamb. Now, some sacrifices had other uses, other functions. There's a peace offering. There's a sin offering. There's a guilt offering. There's a fellowship offering. There's a, there's a thank offering. There's these different kinds of offerings. These are like labels for t- types of offerings that were brought to the temple in the Old Testament. But we have in Exodus 45 a reference to the Passover as a, quote, sin offering. That's a technical term. A sin offering. So there's one reason to think, wow, there's there's a connection to this sacrifice, sacrifice of a lamb as dealing with sin, not just being something you're doing out of love for God or out of thankfulness to God, but rather it's dealing with sin. But we can make a stronger case for this, that theologically the Passover lamb was about dealing with sin, because the whole context of the, of the Exodus is that this 10th plague would cause the death of the firstborn, but Jesus just as he saves us from the coming judgment of God, this Passover lamb would save their firstborn from this coming judgment. It didn't matter that you were Israelite. You needed this lamb and you needed the blood of the lamb applied to your home or the death of the firstborn would take place in your house as well. Now there's, there's more, there's even additional reasons we can see for this. Let me share with you in scripture, how we can say that the Passover lamb was a sacrifice, a sacrifice to avoid punishment for sin. In Exodus 6, verse 6, um, God says um, that he's redeeming them with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment that these are the 10 plagues that he's referring to in Exodus chapter 6. I'm going to bring all these plagues upon Egypt. I'm going to bring you out with great acts of judgment. Specifically, they're called acts of judgment. Um, In Exodus 12, 12, we have the 10th plague specifically called a, um, a judgment. It says, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the good, the gods, not the good, all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. 
So God's executing judgment on the gods of Egypt. Now, if you're thinking, oh, he's he's punishing these these entities, these real, I don't think that's actually the emphasis here. Egypt was, was full of idolatry and the worship of false gods, and God is punishing that idolatry. That's what he's ultimately punishing. So he's punishing those who worship the false gods. He didn't he didn't go through the land and all the idols broke apart. He kills the firstborn. He he does this because of the idolatry and the false worship and the ultimately satanic religious practices they had going on. How does that relate to Israel? Well, because if if Israel was innocent of these judgments, then why would they need the Passover lamb on their doors, uh, the blood of the lamb on their doors? Why would they need the lamb eating the lamb in order to sit, be saved from this judgment? Well, the answer is because they were not innocent. You see, in plagues four through nine, God doesn't punish Israel. He doesn't let them suffer. One through three, everybody goes through it. But plagues four through nine, that's the flies, the livestock, the boils, the hail, the locust, and the darkness is not on the land of Israel. It's not where the Israelites are living, I should say, because it wasn't their nation, but it was the people. So those plagues didn't hit the people, but the Passover was not limited like that. The Passover was going to hit the Israelites too because they were also guilty of idolatry, just like the Egyptians. And we get this in Ezekiel 20, verse 7. Now, this is actually, you may not know this, this is actually a pretty important, significant point when it comes to understanding the purpose of the cross, that Jesus is, he's saving us from the wrath of God. Uh, that is a reality. That's what scripture teaches us. Exodus 27 says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Um, that is not the verse I'm looking for. Oh, Ezekiel, Ezekiel. I mean, that's a good verse. They're all good verses. Though. So Ezekiel chapter 20, verse seven. And this is where God's talking about um, the describing the Israelites while they were in Egypt. And I said to them, cast away the detestable things your eyes feast on every one of you and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. This was a command to the Israelites. They weren't like these perfect, pure people. God was redeeming sinners when he brought the Israelites out of Egypt. They were not these great, wonderful, God-honoring people. They didn't respect Moses. They didn't even want to participate in this whole ad adventure of their own redemption. Um, no, in, in fact, he said to them, you need to get rid of these idols because you're idolaters in Egypt. But they don't listen. They rebelled against him. We're not willing to listen. And so they don't cast away the detestable things. And they did not forsake, quote, the idols of Egypt, as it says here in Ezekiel chapter 20. What's my point? I think I think it should be obvious. This sacrifice was to avoid judgment. And that's exactly what Jesus does for us. Let me give you one more verse because this is something that um, a lot of, especially the progressives, progressive Christians, if I can use that term, sometimes I wonder if it's being applied to even people who are Christians or not. Um, but especially in that camp, they really don't like the idea of judgment or Jesus dying for my sin in the sense in which scripture teaches it. So um, this will help establish that as well as the connection between Jesus and Passover. Exodus 12, 12 says, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. So the the um, the judgment is is coming. It's going to hit Israel too. They've, they've committed idolatry with the idols of Egypt, and God is going to provide them a way out. In verse 13 here, he says, The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So Jesus, he shows up, he shows up 1400 years later and there he is during the Passover week. He connects this all together for us and 
in Matthew 26, verse 26. It says, and this is this is Jesus during his final meal with the disciples during Passover, during that week. He says, now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Now the body that was central to the Passover meal was a, a sacrificial lamb. Jesus is saying, it's my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant. Well, the blood that was significant in Passover was the blood of the lamb through which God was in a sense purchasing his new people. And he says his blood is the new of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The purpose of Jesus's blood is to get us forgiveness for our sins as all the sacrificial laws, you know, are pointing towards and ultimately as the Passover lamb points towards. So this is, this is pretty heavy. Now we, we get it as well in John chapter one. This is our second point that, that the sacrifice of Jesus, like the Passover lamb is to deal with sin. It's not for just for other purposes. It's to cover and deal with sin. In John one twenty nine, we have John the Baptist proclaim about Jesus. It says the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the lamb of God, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Not just to cover those who are Israelites in Egypt, rather the sin of the world. Jesus escalates the whole thing. It's much bigger. It's like Passover, but much bigger and more successful. It covers over all of our sins, the whole world. So the first one was the the, the sacrificial lamb. Jesus is our sacrificial lamb. The two is that it has to do with covering and dealing with sin. Jesus deals with all of our sin. The third point is that the lamb, and now we get into the details of the lamb. The lamb had to be male. Had to be male. You couldn't just have any old lamb. It had to be a male lamb. Now, Jesus was a male. And just as the lamb was male, Jesus is is male. Why is that significant? Why should we care? Well, when we think about gender issues nowadays, we're usually thinking about it. We're concerned about things that many people weren't that worried about in the past. But we're also not thinking about things people were thinking about in the past. So we lose the significance of a male sacrifice. The idea here is that the man or the male lamb was meant to be representative representative this the uh the same sense in which adam represents all mankind eve comes from adam and then all mankind comes from the joining of adam and eve they're both equally in god's image but adam stands as the representative of humankind in the garden and his choice to eat of the tree is the choice that brings us all into the fall so as in adam the scripture tells us all die so in christ all will be made alive in other words just like adam is the single male representative of all mankind so Jesus, the single male representative of all who come to him in faith. And so here we have uh, 1 Corinthians 15.22. And you probably can't keep up in your Bibles, but I'm going to take you to the passages I'm, I'm reading today. It says, for as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. And this is actually a huge point in, in the New Testament that Jesus represents us as our single representative of all mankind. All mankind. Not just all males, but all of mankind. He represents all of us. In uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 45, later on, after explaining this in much more detail than I'll go into today, it goes on to talk about, um, I went to 54 instead of 45. There it is. It goes on to talk about how um, Jesus is the last Adam, right? So the first Adam became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Jesus is superior to Adam. He does represent us, but he does he accomplishes more than Adam ever could gives us 
more than Adam even had. And so this is an important theological connection and it's missed by a lot of people today. Jesus as our representation. So he's, a, he's our single sacrificial representation who deals with our sins so we can be forgiven before God. This is the theology, the deep theology of the New Testament embedded throughout the symbolism of the Old Testament. Number four, the fourth way in which Passover represents Christ. Jesus was without spot or blemish, just like the Passover lamb was without spot or blemish. Let me take you to where we see this in the text. Exodus chapter 12, verse 5. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. And so it's without blemish. That's the part I want to focus on here. What does it mean without blemish? It means that the, the lamb couldn't have like a, def, a, a malfunction of some kind, a deformity, I should say, of some kind, you know, and it, ha, it couldn't have like ugly spots on it or something like that. It was meant to be like um, beautiful and pure. Like, wow, that's a great looking sheep. You know, that's the idea. Though it's not about the great looking of the great lookingness of the animal. Instead, this is about symbolism. All this sacrificial stuff is representative of other things. And so the without blemish thing is widely understood to be without sin. The idea is that it represents sinlessness. And Jesus, he was sinless, as it says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest, speaking of Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now, God's always been without sin, but when he comes in the human form as Jesus, you know, the son shows up, here he is, he lives a perfect life, and he's exposed to temptation, but he never sins, so that he makes it to the place of offering, still without blemish, still without any sort of sin. And the New Testament uh, really takes advantage of the imagery of Passover when talking in sacrifices, when talking about Jesus in First Peter. First Peter verses, chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. Talks about how we were redeemed by Jesus' sacrifice. It says, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Do you see this is, he's, it's his precious blood. He's like a lamb without blemish or spot. He's pure. He's holy. He's perfect in every way. So the lamb had to be pure and holy. Get this. This is this may encourage your heart, Christian. You didn't have to be holy. Your sacrifice had to be holy. You were not without spot or blemish, but your lamb had to be. And if you were to be forgiven and to have it have the judgment pass over you, you were not inspected. You were not evaluated to see your holiness. No, the lamb was evaluated to see if it had, if it was without spot and blemish and you had simply received this, this lamb as your substitute. And so today I receive Christ and I am not evaluated based on my goodness. No, God forgives me because of the purity of Christ. He forgives me because of the holiness of Jesus. So he's evaluated and I'm forgiven. He is examined, found holy and pure, and I and passed over as far as judgment is concerned. My sins are forgiven. That is so powerful. Remind yourself of that. All right, number six. Number six. Um, as the verse we just read in Exodus 12, 5, it tells us that the, um, the, the lamb had to be a year old. 
a one-year-old. Now, we, that sounds really young to us. And of course, we're not farmers, so we're not really thinking, what does that mean for a lamb? Well, at a year old, a lamb is an adult. Uh, it's not a child anymore. It's an adult. Um, this is a, the offering of an adult in its prime of life. A one-year-old lamb would have been of great value. You're no longer just feeding into this animal. You're able to, uh, to breathe the animal. You're able to use the animal for any purpose you might have. This is, this is now uh, in its prime of life. And Jesus, he was in his prime of life when he was offered. You say, well, Jesus was about 30 when he was offered. Wouldn't prime of life be 18? Uh, no, 18-year-olds might think that 18's their prime of life. That's really not reality. Uh, it's not true. And they're about half as smart as they'll be when they hit 25 or 30 in all reality, as, as those of us who are past that age know. But 30 had another significance to the Jewish mind in particular. 30 was how old you were when you could serve as a priest in the temple. You had to be 30 before you could serve in the temple as a priest. So you could stand in a, in a representative and sacrificial role before the assembly of God when you were 30. And so Jesus, he shows up when he's 30. He's reached that sort of maturity, full maturity of age. Now nothing is off limits for him as far as his function uh, spiritually representing us. And so there's a, an example there. As the lamb was one-year-old Jesus, he was 30. Number seven, number seven, when the animal was selected, it was selected, I'll, I'll take you to the passage that tells us this. This is in Exodus chapter 12, verse three. It tells us when they picked the lamb, because there was actually ceremony for how they picked the lamb, what they did with the lamb through that whole week till they finally sacrificed it, how they cooked it, how they ate it. Like all this stuff was really detailed and it relates to Jesus. So we're going to get into that stuff now. So the lamb was selected on the 10th of Nisan, 10th of Nisan. And you're thinking of cars, but no, this is the name of a month. Um, anyway, we get this in Exodus 12, 3. It says, tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. So they were to hold on to this lamb. They took it on the 10th, but they held on to it for multiple days until they sacrificed it on the 14th. That's when they would sacrifice it. That's when, when the next thing would happen. So Jesus, interestingly enough, this seems to be, I mean, we have good reason to think that the day that Jesus did this thing I'm about to read to you, it was on the same day that the lambs were being selected, or certainly near that time at the very beginning of this Passover season. John 12, 12, you may know this. This is what we call Palm Sunday. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it just as it is written. And he goes on and he's, he's, it's just describing, you, you could read this more on your own. We have so much text we're going to cover today. But it's describing Jesus' entry into Jerusalem on this donkey. And then they're, they're laying down the palm branches and they're crying out Hosanna, which means, and here's you have to catch the significance. Hosanna means they're saying Jesus is the coming son of David, the, the one who is to come, the Messiah. They're proclaiming he's the king of Israel. That is hugely important. This is actually part of what got Jesus crucified shortly thereafter. It was his deliberate act to show up. But when he came is significant. He shows up to Israel, presents himself as their king in a way they would understand because of Psalm 18. They would have, or it was Psalm 118. They would have fully understood what he was doing. He was saying, I'm, I'm the coming king of Israel. And he does this in their presence. When? On the day that the lamb is selected the day the lamb is chosen. They evaluate the lamb and they go, this one will be my sacrifice. 
They thought they were selecting their king, in a sense they were, but they didn't realize that just as they'd selected the lamb for sacrifice, Jesus was being selected to die for our sins. That's what he was being chosen for. So that's the selection of the, um, of the lamb. There's more. The lamb between the 10th and the 14th of that month, he would be examined. So this was a process where the lamb could be examined to see if it was really without blemish. You want to make sure that you've got a proper offering that you're going to bring to God. It had to be without blemish or spot. Well, this is the same time when Jesus was tried and they tried to find fault in him, but they were, they were unable to at the same season. This is Matthew chapter 26, verses 59 and 60. At the same season, they're examining the lamb to see if they can find fault in it, in which case it can't be the proper offering for them. This is when Jesus is examined and they can't find fault with him. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none. Though many false witnesses came forward, at last two came forward and said, This man said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days, which is not what Jesus said. These are false witnesses. He said something similar, but with a totally different meaning. Uh, and the high priest stood up and said, have, have you no answer to make? What is this you say? And he, he, he just straight up tells them, Jesus is like, Hey, I'm, I'm, the, son of, I'm the, uh, the son of man who's, who's coming in the clouds of heaven to judge the earth, which is just true. And then they condemn him. So they found no actual fault in Christ that was, that was a violation of the law. So they fabricate something and they use false claims of blasphemy against him. But Jesus wasn't just examined there. He was examined a lot. In fact, we read a lot about this in the New Testament, the trials that Jesus went through, multiple trials before different groups during this examination period. John 19.4, it says, Pilate went out again and said to them, now, now this is the Roman court. In the Jewish court, they couldn't find real true cause against Christ, so he was without spot to them. Pilate shows that he's without spot to the Roman courts as well. Pilate's like, I don't even know why you want to kill him. <laughs> they had to start a mob thing in order to get Pilate to do it. It wasn't because of violation of actual Roman laws. In John 19, 4, Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. And that should have been the end of the story. He's like, I find no guilt in him. But no, no, they want, they want him to die. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. So we have this, uh, this picture that's just like the lamb. Take, take him yourselves and crucify him, he says, for I find no guilt in him. Then the Jews answered, we have a law that according to that law, he ought to die because he's made himself the son of God. Well, he was the son of God. He wasn't violating any laws. See, there's, there's no guilt as far as, as far as he's concerned. In the same way, it's the lamb, pure, without flaw, without fault, yet dying in the place of the people in place of the firstborn. We'll come to that, back to that in a second. That's actually really neat. That's our next thing. And so Jesus is inspected and found faultless at the same time as the Passover lamb is inspected and found faultless so that it can be an offering for the people. But there's more. Um, all right. Just making sure that I'm not getting a... I, every once in a while I get a message from some, one of my one of my uh, mods or something telling me something's going wrong. But no, that was not them. I have to, be, I have to listen because I like mute things and do dumb things sometimes. Okay, so the next one is this, number eight. Number eight, the Passover lamb was in substitute of the firstborn. And this is a significance I think people often miss when it comes to Passover. Let me take you there. Exodus 13, verses 11 through 13. 
speaking of Passover, it says, when the Lord brings you into the land of Canaanites, of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of a man among your sons you shall redeem. So then this is this is a statement that they have to constantly give God the firstborn. Now it says redeem, which means you're, you, would, you would offer sacrificially certain animals, other ones you'd redeem, and you would never offer your son sacrificially to God. But there was a symbolism God wanted the people to be aware of. He wanted them to know, Israel, you owe me a firstborn. And so the, the constant uh, ritual of redeeming, buying back the firstborn son, was to say over and over again to Israel, you owe me a firstborn. And why is this instituted? Verse 14, and when in time to come, your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of... Um, here we go. The, all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. So this is a memory of how we owe God our firstborn. Isn't that interesting? We owe God our firstborn. How does this ultimately relate to Jesus? Jesus is the firstborn. He's the firstborn. He's the one who comes and fulfills this. He's the firstborn of Israel that all this has been commemorating and sort of speaking to prophetically with these, with these lived out metaphors. He's the firstborn. Think about it. it go, it's even bigger than Passover for sure because it goes back to the binding of Isaac. Like, right? Abraham said, you have to offer your son your only son, even though Isaac, uh, Abraham had more than one son. God calls him his only son just to make it look even more like Jesus, his one and only son. And Abraham binds Isaac, but he doesn't actually kill him because God offers an animal substitute. But there's this thing hanging on the head of Israel like, you still owe me a firstborn. The Levites also, the Levites and the priesthood, they were considered like a firstborn offering of Israel to God, the Levitical priesthood. They were all like God's firstborn, so to speak. And so Jesus, he's the firstborn of God. He's the great high priest. He's the ultimate son of Israel. He is the fulfillment of the picture of Abraham offering Isaac on the mountain, actually in Jerusalem where Jesus was killed. So firstborn has several deep prophetic connotations. He's the seed of the woman. He is Abraham's offspring, like Abraham offered Isaac. He's the son of David. He is God's only begotten. There's a single son of David that's mentioned, and he's God's only begotten. This is hugely significant. We could spend all day talking about Jesus being the firstborn, but it's prophetically connected to Passover in a big way. All right, number eight, uh, number nine. Sorry, that was number eight. Number nine, couldn't break its bones. This is about a, um, a ritual with the Passover. You're not allowed to break the bones of the animal. God had specific instructions. And these seem like, why bother with that? Well, they relate to Jesus. Exodus twelve forty six. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. Okay, it's, it's only for the one home. Don't take it outside. But what we're focusing on here is you can't break its bones. How does this relate to Jesus? Well, the Bible makes it pretty clear. I don't even have to guess. John 19.32, so the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. Now, this moment here, John 19.32, we know from uh, his, historical studies into crucifixion, there was something called a crurifragrium 
if you can say that with a, without getting tongue-tied. And what this was is it was, it was a, a device, not like a fancy device. But basically, you'd, you'd take a log and put it between the person's legs and take a hammer and you'd break the legs of a crucif crucifixion victim. Why would you do this? Because when a person is on the cross, they have trouble breathing because of the way their arms are pu being pulled out and their lungs are being pulled open. They actually don't have a trouble trouble inhaling. They have a, they have trouble exhaling. So on the cross, in order to exhale, because of all this pressure pulling your lungs open, you have to push up with your legs to elevate yourself and lower your shoulders to exhale. And then you relax, you'd inhale, and your natural state would be inhaling. Well, if the legs were broken, you could no longer do this labored breathing, and it would really speed up the death of the person. And this was something that they would typically do, especially in Israel, where the Jews had like a big beef with people staying on a cross uh, for long periods of time. It was considered a curse on the land for them to stay on the cross overnight. So they would speed things up. So they did this with the two people who were crucified on the left and right of Jesus. But, verse 33, when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. It's interesting. They just didn't break his legs. And then John goes on to talk about what this means. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water, confirming that he was truly dead. He who saw it has borne witness, his testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken. And another scripture says, they will look on him whom they've pierced. Not one of his bones will be broken. So even, even early on, they saw this as a connection to Jesus. This is actually a reference to probably two different verses when it says the scripture might be fulfilled. One of them, though, is the Passover lamb. Pretty significant stuff. Couldn't break his bones. Number 10. Number 10. And we're going to start moving a little quicker. Um, the Passover lamb wasn't just offered in general. It was, oh, I didn't give you the scripture on. I'll just give it you so you can look at it now. Um, it wasn't just offered in general. It was offered for the household. It was offered for a family of people who had to live under the same roof. And every Passover lamb was going to be for one family and any guests who were brought into that family by their uh by their connection with the family relationally. Everyone who partook was family. And in the same sense, there's a family connection with the death of Christ, Ephesians 2.19. It says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household, household of God. As the Passover lamb was for one family, so Jesus, he has died for one family. It's just a very big family. It is all who come to faith in him, who are made fellow citizens with the saints, and they are made members of the household of God. 1 John 3, 1. It says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. We're called children of God, and so we are. This is, this is because of what Jesus did for us. He makes us into a family, so we enter in and we become that family. That's who he's died for. He's died for one big old household. All right, number 11. The Passover lamb had to be slain. Had to be slain. Um, why am I highlighting that? Doesn't it seem obvious? Well, let me let me explain. First, I'll bring up the scripture we're going to talk about in a second, which is uh, Exodus 6, verse 6 and 7. Um, this one's so obvious, people might miss it. So they had to eat it. They had to kill it. They, ha or they had to do both of those things. They couldn't just say, let it suffer or just have it and hold on to it. This thing had to die. And this is the thing that the Jews struggled with understanding about their Messiah was that he had to die for them. Yet in all the sacrifices, it's always a death that takes place to accomplish the forgiveness. 
So not only did they have to eat it, they had to kill it as a ritual sacrifice. It was an offering for a purpose, and the purpose was purchasing a people. Here we are in Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. This, this killing was uh, to bring about a, a new people. It was, it was the initiation of a new people. Verse 6 here in Exodus 6, it tells us how God, um, how God buys them. He's going to redeem them with an outstretched arm, out from under the burdens of the Egyptian. And then verse 7 tells them what he buys them for, and it's to make them a people, is to make them his people. So it's, it's being brought into a family. Again, I'm connecting this with the last one, number 10, about being brought into a family of God. Revelation 5.9 connects this to Jesus. It says, and they sang a new song, speaking of Jesus. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. So we have Jesus dying just, I mean, this is like Exodus 6, verses 6 and 7, in Revelation as the fulfillment. It's Jesus. He was slain, he, he died, and it was to redeem us, to ransom us, and it was out of every people, he makes one people. So Passover is the culmination of all of this stuff. The, the lamb, uh, of all of the redeeming acts of God in Exodus, Passover is the culmination, the highest point. The lamb must be slain. The lamb must die. It has to die. And Jesus connects this <clears throat> to himself in Mark 8.31. And they didn't understand it very well at the time. Where he says, And he began to teach them, The Son of Man must suffer many things. And be rejected by the elders and, she, and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be killed. And after that, after three days, rise again. So Jesus says the Passover lamb had to suffer, had to die. It was required. So this, the, um, not only was it a sacrifice for sins, the important thing I'm pointing out here is he had to die. Jesus had to die. This was the biggest stumbling block. Uh, one of the biggest stumbling blocks for the Jews at the time who just didn't see what God was doing until after it was already done. Number 12, it had to be at a special location. It had to be at a special location. Now, the first Passover wasn't at a special location. But after that, they had to commemorate or remember the Passover at a special place. They couldn't just remember it anywhere. In Deuteronomy 16.2, it says, And you shall offer the Passover sacrifice to the Lord your God from the flock or the herd at the place that the Lord will choose to make his name dwell there. And his name dwells where his temple is. Initially, this was in some places in Shechem, and then it eventually became Jerusalem. And it's like, that's where you have to go to offer this sacrifice. We also read in Exodus twelve thirteen, The blood shall be assigned for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague shall befall you. I have no reason why I have that verse <laughs> in that particular spot when I strike the land of Egypt. Oh, oh I, I skipped ahead in my notes. That's the next one. I just bounced up in my notes. Uh, the passage I wanted to take to you to was later in Deuteronomy. Just pretend that didn't happen. Things like that don't happen. Mm -mm. Okay, so it has to be where God makes his name dwell. In Deuteronomy 16, verses 5 and 6, you may not offer the Passover sacrifice within any of your towns that the Lord your God is giving you, but at the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell in it. There you shall offer the Passover sacrifice in the evening at sunset. At the, at the time you came out of Egypt. 
So there they are offering it in Jerusalem, and that's where Jesus dies. Jesus dies there in Jerusalem because all these things are to point to Christ. It's not an accident. It's not an after-the-fact thing. This was all planned by God to symbolize and portray the work of Jesus Christ. Let's take you to number 13, and that's that Exodus passage I was taking you to accidentally. Um, One of the things they had to do with the lamb, okay, they had to slay it. And they had to take the blood of the lamb, and I, as I mentioned earlier, they had to put it on the door of the house, on the door of the house. And some actually say that they think this was placed in the shape of a cross, which it could be, because if you, they had to strike the door on the top and on the sides, on the on the the top and the lintels, or you know the frame of the door. And if you just strike it here, strike it there, strike it there, at sort of natural arms distance, you you've got like the dripping of the blood in the shape of a cross. Uh, which is pretty significant to me. <clears throat> but let's read what it says here. Exodus twelve twenty two. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin. This is the lamb's blood. And touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. So they were to come inside, touch the door, and then and then as they pass through, and they're they're safe because of the blood. The blood protects them, so to speak. Exodus twelve thirteen that verse I mistakenly read earlier. The, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So they'd enter through the door with the blood and they'd be saved. How does this relate to Jesus? John 10, verse 9. You already know. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. And we'll go in and out and find pasture. Jesus claims that he's the door. He's the one. You can enter through me. That that he is the fulfillment of this and other symbols relating to doors and access to God, of course. But really, in Passover, the door covered with the blood of the lamb is the way to be saved. And Jesus says, I'm the door. He's the door. He's the lamb. He's the one who offers the blood. He's all of these things. Now, here's an interesting tidbit from history. There's an early Jewish midrash um, that's <clears throat> midrash is like a com- it's like a, it's like a commentary on the text of scripture sort of it's kind of a poetic type thing anyway this jewish midrash it's called the mechilta of rabbi uh, rabbi ishmael the mechilta of rabbi ishmael and it's a commentary on exodus twelve thirteen. that's the verse i just read a moment ago I'll put it on the screen there for you and this is what it says about it <clears throat> it says quote and when i see the blood i will pass over you I see the blood of the binding of Isaac. Why is this significant? Because they're saying that this Passover representing the firstborn is ultimately tied prophetically to Isaac and what Abraham did in Abraham 22, which is also a huge and intricate picture of Christ and God offering his son. This is Jewish commentary. This is not Christian. Okay, this is Jewish commentary. It's all connected to Isaac and Isaac is significant because he's connected to Christ. It's as if God was looking at the blood of the lambs and seeing the blood of Isaac, except it's as though this Jewish Midrash doesn't recognize Isaac never dropped any blood. He was bound and then set free. The one son who offered his actual blood at that place, it was Jesus. So they're seeing it look back to Isaac, but they're not seeing Isaac look forward to Christ. That's the significance. As God was looking at the blood of the lambs, he's seeing ultimately the blood of Christ. Isaac's blood was never offered. Um, the almost offering of Isaac, of Isaac 
was a prophetic event, even in Genesis 22. Even even uh, Abraham himself, he says in Genesis 22, in the future, in the Mount of the Lord, meaning that same location, he says, it will be provided. Well, what will be? Well, the substitute for the offering of the firstborn, it'll be Jesus. Pretty powerful stuff. <clears throat> so they were covered by the blood. The door was covered with the blood. The house was covered with the blood. They would use hyssop, which is interesting. You could consider this an additional separate thing, but I just put it under number 13, blood placed on the door. But they were they uh, they used hyssop to put the blood on the door. Hyssop has interesting connotations in Psalm 51, verse 7. <clears throat> Sorry, I need to drink some water. In Psalm 51, David is repenting over committing murder and adultery, sins for which there is no offering in the Old Testament law. But he calls out to God, God, you cleanse me. I have no offering to give you, but can you cleanse me? Can you forgive me? And so he says, purge me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me <clears throat> and I shall be whiter than snow. Yet later on, Psalm 51, 16, it shows that he has no sacrifice that will accomplish this. Right? You, you, there's, there's no sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. All I can offer God is a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. But God, you will accept that because you have the ultimate hyssop, the ultimate blood covering, cleansing that ultimately comes from Jesus Christ. So judgment was coming to all, but the blood of the Passover lamb gave a way to be saved, just as judgment is coming upon all mankind. And Jesus provides a way for us to be saved. Number 14. <clears throat> Number 14. I know there's a lot of stuff here, but this is an intensive and detailed study of how Jesus relates to Passover. Number 14. The door versus the veil. The door versus the veil. So <clears throat> there's a door in the home that is uh, made passable and safe because of the blood. And there's also a veil in the temple that relates to Jesus and his sacrifice. Some may think I'm stretching a bit on this and it's totally fair for you to do that. But I think that this has connection that should be mentioned. The door, as it made the home a safe place to, to be in spite of judgment, Jesus, he opened the very presence of God. What what space is he opening is safe? God's very presence. We get this in Matthew 27. Matthew 27, verse 51. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And this is at the time of Jesus's uh, death on the cross. At that moment, there's a great earthquake. It says rocks were split open, but also the temple is split open, the veil. This veil blocked you from the holiest place where only a high priest could go once a year. It was like you were, everybody else was barred from being there because it was God's very presence. And sin keeps us from being able to come into his presence. Well, Jesus, his sacrifice opens the presence of God to us. Hebrews talks about this as well. And it gives us the idea that the veil and the body of Jesus, they're all connected. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, you get the idea we're entering into the temple, so to speak, by Christ's blood, but the real temple, not just the physical earthly one, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. So we, we can enter in, we can draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. I have been cleansed by the blood of Christ that I might be in the very presence of God. We also have more scripture for this. Um, oh no, that's all I got for that one. Um, I just would mention in the in the passage before Matthew twenty seven, 
It talks about the rocks were split open and the tombs were opened. So Jesus opens two things on his death. He opens the veil to be in the presence of God and he opens the tombs to show he's beat death. He's conquered death for us. So he's given us eternal life with God. And that's the representation there. Um, Number 15, number 15. The lamb was not only sacrificed, but the lamb had to be eaten or consumed. It had to be consumed. You had to take the lamb into your own body if you were going to survive this judgment that was coming. In the same sense, you need to partake of Christ. And I don't think here we're talking about the uh, Catholic view of the Eucharist. I think we're talking about what Jesus meant when he's saying you need to you need to receive me internally. You have to, you have to take in Christ, so to speak. Matthew, uh, Luke twenty two nineteen. And he took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And so he's saying, The food you're eating, it's me, and you're taking it in. And what were they eating? That was the Passover meal. That was the actual Passover meal. So so we're, we're taking in Christ just like they had to take in the lamb. You can't just acknowledge Jesus mentally. You need to receive him as Lord. You need to to take in a relationship with Christ through faith. That's a hugely important thing. Now, there is a Jewish tradition, modern Jewish tradition, called the Afikomen ceremony. And what they'll do during Passover is they'll take one of the pieces of matzah, and rabbis don't even know where this came from. They debate it, where it came from. Some some would say it may have come from Christian traditions. But they would take uh, a piece of matzah, Matzah, by the way, is this bread that we use every time on Passover. I have a picture of it here for you. And we see it as perhaps representing Christ because it's pierced. They pierce it because they don't want it to rise. It's unleavened bread. So it's pierced just like Jesus was pierced. It's it's charred just like Jesus was suffered the, the punishment for my sin. And it's, um, it's striped even, interestingly enough. This is the standard Jewish bread that they use, not just like for Christians or something. This is just what Jews use. And it's unleavened to show that it's, it's pure or without sin and Christ is unleavened. Well, they would take one of these pieces of matzah and they would hide it in the afikomen, you know, uh, ceremony. They would hide one of these pieces until after the, the meal and then they would bring it back out at the end of the meal and they would declare, you know, like, oh, we've discovered it or something like that. I, I'm trying to remember the exact phrase they use. I'm not going to make one up because I can't remember. But... What's interesting is that Jesus, he relates the bread to his body and it was him who died, was hidden in the ground, so to speak, and then came back resurrected. But the phrases they use when they do it, I should have wrote them down. They are interesting. Now, they're traditions that came post-biblical, right? They probably weren't doing it during Jesus's day. It was probably afterwards. But they're really interesting because they seem to relate to Jesus Christ. I think that's a whole different area of study you could get into. Uh, The word afikomen, what they call it, uh, afikomen, the Avicomen ceremony, they call it the one who has come, the one who has come. And of course, they're waiting for the Messiah who is to come, but Avicomen refers to one who is come, and that would be Jesus. He, he, their Messiah has already come. With Jesus, this is all escalated. They're not just leaving Egypt, you're gaining eternal life and access to God. All right, number 16, how it was cooked. How it was cooked. The, um, the, the sacrificial animal in the Old Testament had to be cooked in a particular way. It couldn't be boiled and it couldn't be raw. This is actually how you could eat. Even now you could eat raw lamb. Uh, I think it's called kibbe. Um, our family does that sometimes. And uh, my wife's family. <clears throat> well, it couldn't be boiled. It couldn't be raw. It had to be roasted in fire and had to be roasted whole. 
with its head, legs, and inner parts. Everything had to be offered. The whole animal had to be there on the fire, just as Jesus was completely offered for us. This this connotes a sacrifice better than a boiling or cooking in some other fashion. Fire in the Old Testament does sometimes represent judgment. Uh, Psalm 89, 46, Isaiah 66, verses 15 and 16. Fire connects to judgment. So here's Christ. He's he's suffering for us on our behalf. He's experiencing that punishment from God for sin that belongs to us. All right. Now let's look at the unleavened bread. Exodus twelve nineteen gives us the place of unleavened bread in the Passover. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leaven, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he's sojourner or a native of the land. So <clears throat> they can't eat any leavened bread. And leaven represents sin. This is consistently the opinion of not only commentators in the New Testament, but also in rabbinic literature. Leaven is connected to the idea of sin. We're getting sin out of our homes, sin out of our lives. And so um, here we see how the unleavened bread, that bread that he took and said, this is my body. How does it represent him? Well, one, Jesus is holy. Jesus is holy. He's without sin. Two, Jesus makes us holy. He makes us holy. The, the, the bread was unleavened, but so the homes were becoming unleavened too. And Christ, he makes us holy. So it says here, connecting the New Testament to this, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. See the, the connection between the unleavened, unleavened bread and Jesus and us, between him being holy and him making us holy. These are absolutely uh, significant. But there's more about the unleavened bread than that. That might be the obvious thing a lot of people notice, but there's more. Deuteronomy 16.3, it gives a more uh, another layer of significance to the unleavened bread. You shall eat no leavened bread with it. Seven days you shall eat it with unleavened bread, the bread of affliction. For you came out of the land of Egypt in haste, that all the days of your life you may remember the day when you came out of the land of Egypt. <clears throat> so modern, modern Jews will say that as they're eating the Passover meal, they're being reminded of the affliction or the suffering that, that was brought on them by slavery in Egypt. Jesus, he's like, this is my body and it's broken. I'm experiencing the suffering for you. He took the affliction that was ours because of our bondage to sin. All right, number 18, it was eaten with bitter herbs. It was eaten with bitter herbs. They're actually told what to eat with the Passover lamb. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. What are bitter herbs? Well, there's various bitter herbs that people use. One of them though is horseradish. Like we're talking stuff that makes you go, Ugh, you know, this is, I like horseradish, but it does make you do that, right? Like, Ugh. and <clears throat> so the bitter herbs are connected to, to, um, the suffering of that they experienced in Egypt. Exodus 1 14 uses the same terminology to describe their suffering as slaves. They were slaves and it made their lives bitter with hard service. So they're eating the bitter herbs to remind themselves of the bondage of the slavery of the bitterness that they experienced. That's the idea. Jesus, he was sinless, but what, ex what he experienced as our, um, as our Passover, he experienced the bitterness caused by sin. And we have this in Isaiah 53, 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Christ experienced in a very real and visceral way the bitterness of my sin and your sin and the slavery and the bondage that we have engaged in in rebellion to God. And so it's a reminder of the bitterness, um, not only of what Jesus experienced, but moving forward in our, in our walk with Christ, 
It's a reminder of the fact that we may actually suffer hardship and pain and bitterness in this world, and some of you may be suffering it right now. Philippians 1.29 says, It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. And as you partake of Passover, and as you're reminded of the death of Christ, may you be reminded that there may be a cross for you to bear, there is, and that there may be suffering that you engage in, not so you can cry and be poor me, but rather so that you can say, you know what, I'm going to glorify God. I'm going to glorify God that I was counted worthy to suffer for his namesake. Number 19, <clears throat> getting close to the end here. How they ate it. They had to eat it in a special way. Here we get it in verse Exodus, uh, Exodus chapter 12, verse 11. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, with your sandals on your feet, and with your staff in your hand. You shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Uh, interestingly enough, I don't think that the Jews typically do this nowadays. I don't think they eat it in haste. I think it's a very long, drawn-out meal. But it just to be eaten in haste, it's the Lord's Passover. Maybe they eat a part of it in haste as a memory of that. I don't know. But here they had to eat it in a hurry. Now, the reason for them initially eating it in a hurry was because they were on their way out of Egypt. It was like, after this happens, boom, get out of Dodge. Like, leave the country, and then Pharaoh's coming after them with his army right after that. So it was a pretty big deal to get out of Dodge right away. But how does this relate to Jesus? 1 Corinthians 11.26. How did Jesus fulfill this? For as often as you eat this bread, Jesus uh, gives us the significance and Paul relays it from Christ to us. As often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. There's this until he comes thing about Passover, where when we partake of communion and this Passover memory, what we need to do is we need to be thinking about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we live in this world as pilgrims passing through, as those who are not permanent residents of this earth. This is not my final home. This is not my final anything. Rather, I am living for the kingdom of God and the eternal kingdom of Christ, and eternal glory awaits. That's where my hope is. That's where my confidence is. That's where my comfort is. Romans 8 speaks to this. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we eagerly wait for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So we're waiting for this coming kingdom. Our staff is in our hand and I hope yours is. I hope you've remembered, especially with all the turmoil going on right now, that our ultimate kingdom is eternal and untouchable by the current suffering that's go that goes on in this world, this temporary world. As we partake of Christ, we are realizing that we're not only coming out of sin, we're coming out of a temporary world into his glorious eternal kingdom. We eat it with our staff in our hand. All right, number 20. Number 20, uh, none of it could remain until morning. This is a peculiar thing. None of it could remain until morning of the, of the Passover meal. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. You had to eat it. It was for the whole family. And then boom, destroy anything that was left over. And the New Testament seems to relate this to Jesus in fulfillment in that Jesus uh, would not remain on the cross. He would not remain until morning, so to speak. John 19.31 Since it was the day of preparation so that, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. 
So they come and they break their legs and they take them away. Jesus was buried immediately. He was buried the same day he was crucified. Not, it did not remain until morning. That's very interesting. A very interesting uh, connotation there. Um, now, the, um, um, yeah, I'll move forward to the next one. Number 21, the nature of the 10 plagues has it so that the Passover sacrifice is not just one of the 10 plagues, right? It's not just another plague. It's the last and final plague. It is the climax. It is the culmination of all these acts of judgment. So this is like the final climactic act of judgment. And it is the ultimate plague that finally leads to the deliverance of people. And so Jesus, uh, with all the things that God has done throughout history, Jesus's death and resurrection is the ultimate thing that leads to the deliverance of mankind. It is the one act that succeeds in delivering us. All right, number 22 is a judgment and a sacrifice that brings deliverance from, quote, slavery. Slavery. Now, this is throughout the Exodus narrative and throughout the Old Testament. It's a big deal that God brought. He bought a people who were all slaves when he bought them. When he bought them, that's a term he uses. So he sends Pharaoh, hey, let my people go. God says they're his people. He says, let them go. And he's come to, what, set the captives free. And that's the whole context throughout the uh, book of Exodus and constantly reminded of throughout the Old Testament. Well, in John 8, 31, Jesus connects his Passover offering to delivering us from bondage as well. John 8, 31, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word and you are truly my disciples and you will, you, um, you are truly my disciples, excuse me, and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And they get offended, some of them at this, set us free. They answered him, we're offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? So what, what freedom will Jesus give us? How is he going to get us out of slavery? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And so he's giving them the answer. The, the picture is, look, the deliverance from the bondage of Egypt was ultimately... The most important thing about it was that it was a picture that Jesus would deliver you from the bondage of your own sin. Not only the guilt of the sin, but the control of the sin. And you receive this ultimately from Christ. That's number 22. Number 23, there is only one lamb, ultimately. Now, this is kind of a peculiarity you get when you study the uh, Passover in great detail. You wouldn't probably notice it otherwise. So let me explain what I mean when I say there's only one lamb. Well, but there's a lamb in every house, Mike. Yeah, but but look at look at these texts in the Old Testament. It talks as if there was only one lamb, and I think it has prophetic significance. Second Chronicles thirty five eleven, and they slaughtered the Passover lamb, and the priests threw the blood that they received from them, and while the Levites flayed the sacrifices, and they set aside the burnt offerings uh, that they might distribute them according to the groupings of the fathers' houses and the people, and it goes on. But here's the tribute part. While there very probably were lots of Passover lambs that were sacrificed on that day, it's discussed as if there's only one. They slaughtered the Passover lamb. Now, right after that, it says that the Levites flayed the sacrifice says, plural, so there seems to be more than one, but it's discussed as if there was only one. But I'm not building my whole case on that. I want you to consider the following passage from the book of Ezra. Ezra chapter 6, verse 19. On the 14th day of the first month, the returned exiles kept the Passover. For the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together. All of them were clean. 
So they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles, for their fellow priests and for themselves. And it was eaten by the people, it, singular, it, one Passover lamb slaughtered, and it, singular, was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile, and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. Now, it seems like there had to be more than one lamb that was offered in Ezra. It would seem like this because how could everyone eat of the one lamb? There's way too many people. But it's discussed as if there's only one lamb. What could the significance of this possibly be? Well, Jesus is the lamb. Jesus is the ultimate lamb. We get this throughout scripture. Let me give you one example of it. In Revelation 5 verse 12. And they were saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the lamb who is slain. To receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Christ is the singular lamb who was offered for all. As John had said, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world in John chapter 1. John the Baptist said it. Jesus is the lamb. So there's this sort of typological like foreshadowing in the Old Testament where the Passover lamb is talked about as if there's only one lamb for all the people. And Jesus comes and he is the lamb for the whole world. I love it. Number 24. It is not only against sin that the Passover deals with, deals with the issues of sin or or slavery, but the Passover was judgment on the world and on spiritual rulers. In in Exodus, in our Old Testament shadow, the Passover, it deals with Pharaoh. There's like a battle between God and Pharaoh ultimately, and he's judging the gods of Egypt, as a verse I read to you earlier says, Exodus 12, 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. I will strike all the firstborn land of Egypt, both man and beast, and all the on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. So it's done against the gods of Egypt, Pharaoh, and these and these false gods, which we know from the New Testament, ultimately dem- demons are behind. And it's also um, in the New Testament, we see that Jesus, he not only delivers me from sin, but he delivers me from the world, represented here maybe by Pharaoh, and from demonic powers or Satan himself, represented just in the Old Testament with God judging the gods of Egypt. So it's the world, the flesh, and the devil. They're all three conquered by Christ. Here's the New Testament verse for you. Galatians 6.14 But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. That's that's the idea that <clears throat> we've overcome the world through the cross, just like they over- overcame Egypt through the um, through the Passover sacrifice. It's also victory over Satan, just as it was victory over the gods of Egypt. Colossians 2.15 He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over, over them in him. This is speaking about, of course, the cross the cross so the cross gives a victory over spiritual powers of wickedness that's what we see in the cross we see this also in hebrews chapter 2 verse 14 since therefore the children share in flesh and blood he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death that is the devil so he conquered over ultimately over satan so we have here um, a, a, a perfect parallel between passover and and Jesus. It's it's pretty incredible. I'll give you guys a couple more bonus ones because why not? <clears throat> All right. There is an Old Testament text that takes the Passover imagery and it applies it to the Messiah so that we can take the 
pick this catch this i hope you're still with me here i know there's a lot of content <laughs> there's a lot of stuff you should probably watch this video in like three sittings um but it takes this passover symbolism and it ties it to a direct prophecy about the future messiah dying for our sins and that's isaiah 53. it says that he was oppressed and afflicted yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like sheep that is be that before its shearers is silent so he opened not his mouth that this messiah this coming servant of god who will deliver us from our sin be our sin bearer in isaiah 53 he is like the passover lamb you see the, the passover was the very first national lamb offered for the people of israel and Jesus is the ultimate lamb of God offered for all the people of the world. Isaiah 53 takes that Passover or that lamb symbolism and it applies it directly to the Messiah. This is not, it's not the disciples made this up. They didn't just discover this uh, or make this up later. Rather, they discovered it because God had embedded it into the text of scripture in the first place. All right, final one. The necessity of Passover. And this we get from Numbers 9.13. Passover was not optional for the people of Israel. If they did not observe Passover, bad things could happen to them. But if anyone who is clean and is not on a journey fails to keep the Passover, that person shall be cut off from his people because he did not bring the Lord's offering at its appointed time. That man shall bear his sin. His guilt will be on himself. That phrase, bear his sin. His guilt will be on himself if he rejects this Passover. This is a huge deal. He's going to be cut off. Well, with Jesus, we see the reverse of all this, right? When we accept Christ, we're grafted in. We're not cut off, we're grafted in, Romans 11 tells us. And the man was said, it said he would bear his own sin if he rejects Passover. Well, in 1 Peter 2.24, we read that Jesus bears our sin because we do receive his Passover sacrifice. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you've been healed. This is, uh, it's, it symbolized probably the best in John 14, 6. Jesus said to them, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The Passover was not optional for the people of Israel. Jesus is not optional for the people of the world. If you want your sins forgiven, it comes through God's single sacrifice, the one Passover lamb who died during the feast of Passover because it was always about him. You know what I would love to see sometime? I would love to see one of these Easter movies that do like a reenactment of the death of Christ. I'd, maybe there's one that exists and I don't know it. I'd love to see one that actually connects some of the symbolism of Passover with the sacrifice of Christ. Like if you're one of these movie people and you're watching... Can you do one where you guys like, you know, here's Jesus on the cross and you show the corresponding rituals taking place through that week that, you know, very possibly at the same day when Christ was crucified, even at the same time, they're blowing the trumpets and offering the lambs and applying the blood. And this is, this is hugely significant. It'd be cool if it was in one of those movies, I think. Uh, yeah. Now it's not just Passover. All of the Jewish feasts represent Christ. This is just one feast in great detail, more detail than anybody asked for, but hopefully you know, people are going to appreciate it. I do have a, a video series about how Jesus fulfilled all kinds of stuff in the Old Testament, and I've linked that in the video description. It's called Jesus in the, or How to Find Jesus in the Old Testament. 
my favorite series of everything I've ever taught. I've enjoyed that the most because it's so rewarding to study it. I'd love for you to comment though, what stood out to you of all these different things? Is there anything that stood out to you? Maybe there's something where you think, nah, I think you went too far there. Please let me know. I'm just studying along with you, trying to you know, mine the scriptures for the riches that God has placed there. There's stuff I didn't even notice. Maybe you could add something that I didn't even think of. And our next thing will be uh, this coming Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific time or California time. We'll be doing uh, another video and you guys are welcome to come to that. Let me close this out with one thought. We're not doing Q&A today, <clears throat> but, uh, but I would like to close out with one thought, and that is from Romans 8. Because Jesus is my Passover sacrifice, because I have received him, because his blood is applied to me, so to speak, I am forgiven, I am washed, I am cleansed. And this applies not only to the sin I've committed, but it applies to the current sufferings of this present time. We've overcome these things already. I pray this last scripture reading would really encourage you, and then I'll sign off. Romans 8, verses 34 through 39. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor, pre uh, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I hope you're convinced and I hope you're comforted. God bless you.